0: Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their Hellhound Roast, Witch's Brew, Devil's Night Roast, or Sinful Delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee, coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. <laughs> Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Joe Russo is an American writer, director, producer, and podcaster. On top of being a very accomplished screenwriter with multiple scripts under his belt, including the recent Bruce Willis thriller, Hard Kill... Joe's had a multi-year collaboration with Mick Garris, and in addition to producing Mick's post-mortem podcast, Joe produced the amazing anthology Nightmare Cinema last year. Joe's most recent project is his feature directorial debut, The Au Pair Nightmare, now on the Lifetime Network. The All Pair Nightmare tells the story of Taylor, a young au pair who cares for a family who holds a deep, dark secret. It's a really fun watch, and you can stream it on Prime Video right now. He's a household name in the horror community, and I really enjoyed chatting with him. Please give it up for Joe Russo. Oh, cool. So, how did um, how did the All Pair Nightmare come together? That's a really good question.
1: Uh, so, we were making Nightmare Cinema, and okay. we were in post production. And one of my uh, producing partners on the movie, uh, Nancy Leah Party, she had seen my short films. Mm-hmm. Uh and she had read some of my scripts and she's, she's like, You're a good writer, uh, and and your and your directing's good. Um I know you want a chance at a feature. Uh why don't you come at us with a uh indie female-driven thriller that we could shoot, you know, for a a, a really cheap price and uh and shoot it in 14 days and we'll let you write and direct. It. Um so I was like, "That's a really interesting opportunity," and you know, <laughs> up to that point, uh, we had been having, you know, some success in on the writing fronts because we got on this uh, this year end list called the Blood List. I don't oh, know nice! Yeah,
0: it. I was going to ask because you mentioned scripts. I was going to ask, did you put them on the Blood List?
1: Yeah, yeah, and we can we can get into all that uh, and, and go back in time, but um, but you know, Kaylee Marsh put together uh, the Blood List about ten plus years ago. Uh, as an alternative to the blacklist, because mm-hmm. the blacklist, which is like the, the best scripts of the end of the year, yeah. it wasn't really acknowledging genre scripts, right. uh, m- much, much like the Oscars doesn't really like to acknowledge, uh, <laughs> you know, genre, we, you know, the, the scripts were not getting the, the love on the blacklist. So she's like, well, let me do the same thing. Let me pull my executive relationships around town and ask them what are the best, you know, horror and dark genre scripts that they read this year. And uh, we were really lucky. We, uh, we got on three years in a row with three different scripts.
0: Oh wow. Um, got on the blood and, list.
1: Yeah, on the blood list. And so that kind of cemented me as a, a horror writer to pay attention to, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm very grateful for. And uh, you know, so <clears throat> when that happened, um, it, it just it just opened all sorts of doors like like this one for Op pair. So um, a friend of mine happened to pitch me. An idea for a nanny murder movie and the thing that i thought was intriguing about the idea was hand that rocks the cradle it's you know the protagonists are mom and dad inviting a nanny into their home and that's kind of the typical way that that genre is formulated it's about the stranger coming into the home and and disrupting the home environment Uh, i thought it would be cool to flip it on its head uh, and have the nanny go into the home with crazy parents, <laughs> uh, and you know I'm sure you've had crazy bosses. I've certainly had crazy bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's something that everyone can relate to more so than having a nanny or an au pair, right? I, you know, and then I, you have to live. I didn't with grow your up boss. with one. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, to me, just, it just felt like that was a more relatable way into the story, mm-hmm. and we could kind of sink our hooks into. Uh, the nanny protagonist a little bit more. And, you know, I think the idea of going into this home and playing detective and slowly trying to unravel a mystery uh, and, and try to, you know, unearth this family's dark secrets, uh, that, that seemed very appealing to me. Uh, so we pitched that idea to Nancy and her partner, Ross, and they agreed. Um, and, you know, luckily so did their, uh, their financiers. Um, and so they uh, they greenlit the script to for us to write it in mid November, uh, and we did a draft that was returned it in January. We did a quick polish in February, and uh, they greenlit the movie in April. It was Whoa. crazy. It was the fastest I've ever had anything move on the development side ever. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, from from finding from having that first conversation with Nancy. Uh, when we were doing posts on Nightmare Cinema to being in production was one year. Um, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. I wish they could all work like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, wish, I wish we could just have a producer say, this is exactly what I'm looking for and exactly what I need. And then you give that to them and then you go make the movie. It seems like that. that's like, why can't it just be that? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so... On the development side, it was it was it was a great experience.
0: Yeah, um,
1: you know, and you had a uh, writing
0: but, partner, right?
1: I do. Uh, yeah, Chris and I have been writing together for for years. Uh, you know, we met out in Phoenix. Um, he is a teacher at Arizona State, where I went to school.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
1: and uh, when I took his class way longer ago than both of us care to admit, uh, he was the youngest. <laughs> professor working at asu's film department um Mm -hmm. and uh we just we just clicked right away he uh he watched my student film i did for his class and he ripped it apart and i went (laughs) back into the edit and i redid all the notes and he was like "You turned this into a a good little movie you know and uh you know we, we stayed in touch and because i knew he would give me honest feedback i would bring my other projects to him kind of throughout film school and uh and when it came time when I graduated, he was uh, prepping a little tiny movie called uh, the the Graves, which was a After Dark Eight Films to Die For movie okay. uh, with Tony Todd and Bill Mosley. Oh wow! And uh, it was a really, really challenging movie. Uh, we were out in this abandoned mining town, forty five minutes outside of wickenburg arizona holy shit that sounds tiny awesome place and uh and the crazy thing was because we were on this abandoned mining town you couldn't drive any of the trucks out onto it because there was risk of cave so you literally oh had my God. all these like pas marching equipment across the desert
0: <laughs> cave oh because it's all built on top of mines
1: exactly Oh, so exactly. you could be in a
0: truck that could just go into an old mine shaft
1: whoa uh-huh so we had we had to literally carry equipment like piece by piece holy shit. in the middle of the summer in arizona i mean it was crazy but chris and i had this really great bonding experience on that movie and uh i said to him very shortly after i was like i need a calling card piece to go to la with <gasps> and um So he gave me a short film screenplay that he had been working on to direct. Mm -hmm. Um, And that short ended up uh, opening up lots of doors. It it played a bunch of film festivals, won some awards. Um, But the thing that it did that was really helpful was I got it in front of, I was interning in LA and I showed the short film to uh, the assistant, to the CEO of the company I was working at. Mm-hmm. and he was like, this is good. I'm going to show this to my boss. And I was like, whoa, okay. And uh, little did I know, he was planning on leaving the company at that point, mm. and he was trying to find his replacement. Um, and so when he showed the shorts to my the, uh, Bill Todman, who would become my boss, uh, he kind of positioned it as, this guy's pretty good. Maybe you should give him a job, you know? And, uh, so, so he watched, uh, two of my short films and he said, you have the talent, you have the entrepreneurial spirit. You don't know anyone. You don't know how the industry works. Uh, come work for me. Um, so I was like, I just, I I was like, you know, I was just looking for any way to get my foot in the door. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any relationships out in Hollywood. I took this internship on a lark, hoping it would open an opportunity like this. So I was just going to follow the momentum, you know? and uh i ended up working at that company for five years
0: oh my uh, god yeah what company yeah, was I this again? As,
1: the company's called level one entertainment they're mostly known for making a movie called grandma's boy
0: oh uh, yeah i remember that the
1: happy madison <laughs> video game stoner comedy <laughs> yeah that which was is a great like special quote, classic um and bill uh you know he had a real moment in the 90s um you know, he, he was a producer on X-Men and Wild Wild West and oh, nice. uh, Ace Ventura 2 and Married to the Mob and Hard to Kill. Uh, so he, he was great to learn from. Uh, and, and, you know, because the company was uh, independently funded by his billionaire buddy from elementary school, uh, it was a really low pressure environment uh like the company wasn't going to go anywhere it didn't necessarily have to make movies to to survive right um so so it was great because i could work with i could take chances so as i got promoted to uh creative exec and director development um you know i found some really great writers who you know have gone on to do some really awesome things you know I, I, i took general meetings with all sorts of cool people like like people that your fan base would know like uh uh Dennis Woodmeyer and Kevin Colch mm-hmm. uh met them there. You know, I met Ari Aster there. Oh, that's awesome.
0: Um yeah. Pre hereditary so, so Ari Aster.
1: Pre-Hereditary
0: Arias. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. We had a we had a great meeting. We really hit it off. And uh, you know, but I I mean Hereditary was the script I read and I was like, this is good. I want to meet with this guy.
0: Oh wow. And so you I read Hereditary yeah. before it made, it made its way to A twenty four.
1: Oh yeah. I mean Hereditary had a long long winding did road it to getting made oh yeah, I didn't yeah
0: know that, that was not
1: an that was not an easy one-off um someday someone should really sit him down and have him explain that process. i'd love to be that person uh, i'd love to have him i would show. love for you to be it too uh <laughs> yeah because <laughs> i, cause I hear haven't that heard in that
0: interview. story because it seemed like it all came together so smoothly and he got such a killer cast and it being his directorial debut i was like yeah. how the fuck did he do that it's
1: it's one of those it's one of those uh 10 year overnight sensation kind of
0: thing right yeah know?
1: I mean, I, I met with Ari in 2014, and what the movie didn't come out until 2017,
0: 17, 18, yeah. something like that. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even that's just a long, you know, but I mean, I mean, like, I'm on the talk, right? I mean, Nightmare Cinema took five years to make. Did so. it really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Whoa. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, met, I met Mick in, I uh, met Mick Garris in 2014.
0: Oh, um, all right. Is that how you guys came yeah. together? Was on Nightmare Cinema? Or-
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nightmare Cinema actually uh, birthed the post-mortem podcast, uh, not the other way around.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. We, we met, uh, when I was director of development at that company Okay. and he said, I really want to reboot masters of horror under a new name mm-hmm. and I want to call it nightmare cinema. And I was like, I love masters of horror. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to figure it out. Yeah. And, uh, so we initially, we, we were trying to pitch it as a TV series. Um, and we went to his amazing black book of contacts and got a bunch of letters of intent from, I mean, a who's who of horror directors. And uh, we walked it around to all the you know different studios. So we couldn't get over kind of this interesting conundrum, which was they really liked the names on the list, especially the names that were at the top half of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... What their fear was they were going to spend all this money developing these scripts, and then the directors that they really wanted were going to be off doing something else. And they mm. wouldn't be available. okay, to shoot it., uh, and so we couldn't figure it out. and uh, so my boss at the time kind of pronounced the project dead. And uh, I left the company shortly thereafter, and I called Mick back up and I said, "I still really believe in this thing. You know, maybe I can find a way to get a script paid for." As a feature, hmm. and uh, and that's what we did. Um, I I found the money through a friend. Uh, uh, my friend Brandon Hill who's at Fangoria now. Um, his company put up the money to do the script, and uh, <clears throat> we we you know that's when we got Alejandro Briones and nice. David Slade and Joe Dante and Ryuhei Kanemura, and uh, that that was really the that was probably fall of 2015. Okay. So I mean this this thing had a long long gestating.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but the fact that you didn't give up on it and then you you kept adapting it and as far yeah, as I, all yeah, right, if it can't no, be a series, I mean, let's so, just do so, a feature. Because I mean, now that there's a feature, I would imagine there, there possibly could be more interest in doing a series now that people we, see what it is or a series of movies.
1: A, I'll just say this. We might be exploring a sequel.
0: Cool. Uh, I hope so. It was it, a it, fun night, you know, in a theater. It just reminded me of uh, I know anthology movies people have mixed feelings about, but this was so much fun. So much. Fun. I got to see it at uh, Outlook, or not Outlook. What am I oh, saying? No. Over uh, Microsoft, Overlook. the yeah, Microsoft yeah. Words Only Film Festival. No, I got to see it at the Overlook film Festival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, no, it was. It was. I mean, oh, we had we had an amazing festival run too. I mean, I, I joke that we uh, we made this movie so Mick could go on vacation around the world. Oh
0: cool! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was I mean, just such a fun night at the movies you just like that was a night when you got your money's worth there was, it was yeah. so much going on it was uh, it was a real I, blast I, mean, I
1: always i always say it was a poo poo platter of horror yeah
0: you know? it's a good way it's, to put it.
1: it literally it literally has something for everybody in it and um you know i think i think with anthology as long as you come away you know responding to at least one or two of the segments i think mm-hmm. it's worthwhile yeah you know? and I, I think i think we definitely check that box for most people
0: yeah you know yeah, because they were all completely um, so, different types of stories. I don't think they could have been more diverse, you know, in terms of absolutely. the voices and the style of everything. I mean, it was a real mixed bag for yeah. sure. Which well, I think and, was and the great thing so for fun. me was
1: I was on I was on set every single day.
0: Whoa! Um, How long did yeah. it take to film?
1: Uh, about thirty days, uh, all in.
0: Oh um, my god, that's not a lot.
1: It is not a lot, uh, but you know, yeah. So about about every five days you know, we would swap out to a new story and with, with a couple of days in between to help kind of prep and get the crew changed over and sets ready and such. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I, Lauren Fitzsimmons, who is our production designer on, on the entire run of the show. I mean, her and her team just did an amazing job because I mean, she, like you said, they're so different yeah, and she had to create all those different looks. Um, and that was that was I think that was probably the hardest part.
0: Yeah, they all know. look completely different. Did you have a different DP for every story or no? Same guy. We
1: had no. There's three DPs on the movie.
0: Okay, yeah, because um, they all very yeah. visually were very distinctive, very different. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Joe Joe and Mick shared a director of photography uh, named Andrew Russo, who does not is not related. No to relation. Me. Uh, no relation. I met him on Nightmare Cinema, uh, but he actually was my director of photography on The Off Pair Nightmare.
0: Oh, Um, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So we've, so, so we continue that relationship, uh, you know, into into that, uh, and hopefully more to come. Um, but it's very funny because obviously everyone thinks we're related. related.
0: (laughs) They think you're the other Russo brothers.
1: Uh, Yeah, exactly. We we changed the slate on, uh, the off Pair Nightmare to say the Russo duo. Uh,
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. You got (laughs) to distinguish from the, uh, uh, Avenger guys.
1: Yeah. The Russo brothers. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but, yeah, so so Andrew did Mick and, and Joe Dante's. Um, uh, Matthias Schubert did uh, um, Ryuhei and Alejandro's. And then David Slade had his kind of go-to DP who did Hard Candy with him in 30 Days of Night. Yo okay. Willem uh, do his. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, just, again, it was just an amazing experience because I got to watch five distinctive filmmakers, you know, do their thing. Oh, man. Must had, have been a master a front- class. Exactly. I really, honestly, truly think that the reason the opera Nightmare turned out as well as it did, given, you know, a 14 day schedule to make a feature film, uh, I, I I think it's because I had that experience on Nightmare so Wow, absolutely. that's amazing.
0: Were there any specific either stories or uh, big directorial lessons that you took away? That come to from mind nightmare, from making nightmare, from being around all of those amazing directors in such a condensed time period. I mean, that must have been just such a crash course.
1: I mean, it's so it was so interesting because, like you know, like Ryuhei for example, um, he likes to shoot the shit out of everything. You know, like it's it's all about tons of camera angles
0: with him, mm, okay. you
1: know, and and because he likes to have all those options and and yeah. posts, and he wants to create a really. You know, kinetic and frenetic experience. You can tell by verses
0: that that's his style.
1: Absolutely, and and uh, and you can tell by the the action climax and and Machete and Nightmare that that you know when he's chopping up all those kids. Yeah, that was so uh, insane. It was was insane. (laughs) Uh, But you know, so so you know he that was really interesting. And then you you contrast that to Joe Dante, who figures out his shots when he gets there. Mm-hmm. you know because his brain is so wired from being an editor uh, that he can just he can just literally walk in look at the blocking figure out the shots that he needs and he knows exactly when he has it The confidence that he has was really really inspiring to me because you know he'll do it two or three times and he'll be like eh, that's enough of that and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then he's on to the next thing and even the actors were kind of like had to get used to that speed and, you know, he, he knew he had it before they did.
0: He's a graduate you know? of the Corman school, man. It's once you get the shot, you move on.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, that, that was definitely, I think a big lesson uh, for me. And I think for Andrew too, uh, you know, he'd never worked in a situation where he didn't go in with a shot list, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so, so I think that for him and I was super helpful when we got to a pair, and we had a lot of shifting schedules and shifting mm-hmm. locations and just, you know, kind of production hiccups that we had to work through that constantly made our shot list have to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so be, him having the confidence of having already instinctually worked through shooting scenes with with Joe uh, was definitely a huge boon for me uh, in terms of, you know, being able to be like, okay, here's exactly what we need to make this scene work, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I mean, so, so, I mean, so much stuff and, you know, and I think just, I think the biggest thing that I ported over from Nightmare Cinema to Au Pair Nightmare, other than Nightmare being in the title, uh, <laughs> uh, is, is, you know, I think Mick talks about this a lot and I think he even talked about it on, when you had him on way back when. So the biggest thing other than, you know, porting the, the title over from Nightmare Cinema to au pair nightmare was you know and mick talked about this i think on your episode i think you have to try to dig a little deeper um emotionally when you're doing a horror film and i think those are the things that tend to stand out and i tried to even though au pair nightmare is a thriller uh and it's a thriller that ultimately aired you know on lifetime uh i was like how do i take you know, I think Lifetime, you know, Joe Bob Briggs said it best a couple months ago on the Halloween Hootenanny. He said Lifetime is making the best and the only exploitation movies yes. around yes. these days anymore. You know, they're like, they, they shoot them for a couple hundred thousand dollars and they shoot them in no time. They're and, scandalous you know, as hell. Yeah, they're scandalous as hell. They're they're really soapy. They're really over the top. They're, you know, and and I was like, well, how do I take those things like like so and and make it a little bit deeper than just uh man stocks woman or woman stocks man or yeah. woman stocks woman or what you know like like how do I dig deeper into that? How do I find a story that can like really lean into um something that can get under the skin. And that was why that that story that we came up with that we pitched, I was so excited about because there's a whole element of obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh for both the protagonist and the antagonist. Yeah. Um, and the protagonist basically gets to look into a dark mirror with this story. Hmm. She gets to see, like, if she sees, like at the beginning of the movie, tragedy strikes, and her her boyfriend, who had just just proposed to her, uh, is killed in a car accident. And um she becomes very obsessed with that moment and it's keeping her from moving forward. And she ends up confronting a character, the antagonist of this movie uh, who has been obsessed with a dark moment in her life for years uh, and has literally let it control her life, how she lives, where she lives, how she runs her household, how she runs her family uh, to the point where she, she has the sensitivity to it that could even lead her to kill. Right. Right. So so literally the the movie is holding up a dark mirror between these two characters. And I think that that is what makes uh, both those characters when they're on screen together kind of crackle, you know, Uh, and I think that that's what makes, you know, ultimately the people are responding to the movie so well is because there's it's a very cathartic experience for for Taylor uh, at an emotional gut level for us, too. Right. You know. And Mick has always kind of talked about bringing out the drama uh, of of horror. You mm-hmm. know, what is what are you trying to say? What are the messages thematically, emotionally? You know, politically? like yeah. so, You know, when you don't socially. have that,
0: the the horror element, does not work nearly as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I mean, all of the best horror movies have those things, and I think that um, you know, I I was like, can I take that philosophy that that Mick has had his entire career and try to apply it to a female driven thriller that, that, you know, ultimately might end up on lifetime, you mm-hmm. know? So um, I, 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 that was really important to me. And I think that was probably the biggest lesson I poured it over from working with Mick for five years and then going into this experience.
0: Interesting. Really cool. Did you turn to anybody for uh, counsel prior to getting on this film? This w- this was your directorial your feature debut, right? This was your this first. Was my feature? feature debut. Yeah, yeah
1: I, uh, I've, I've done I've done a bunch of shorts, you know, over the years for Crypt TV and Alter yep. and and all those kind of places. Uh, Fun size horror, um, nice. And uh, uh, you know, and the last one I did on on the one I did right before. Um, uh, the one I did right before Nightmare Cinema is a short film for Alter called Midnight Clear. Um and that one I had very very long conversations with both Mick and Joe Dante uh before going and shooting it and I was it was invaluably helpful. Really? Um <clears throat> absolutely. Uh I yeah. couldn't believe that Joe let me pick his brain for as long as he did. Oh that's so cool. <laughs> He uh, just sat but with him really, for
0: hours and asked questions and talked we to movies. Went to
1: his, we went to his favorite pizza place in Hollywood, and uh, which is, we, we, uh, I don't, I don't know if he wants me to say okay. <laughs> and because uh, and, he goes there a lot, okay. And um, but uh, you know, we we chatted for a couple hours. I mean, just not just about the short, but just about movies in general. And I mean, anytime you get to pick. Uh, that man's brain—it's—it's it's great. Yeah. You know, you've done it before. Yep. So, uh, so that was that was super helpful. But with Opera uh, Nightmare, um, it was crazy. We we had a really interesting experience in development. We were about—we had just turned in the second draft, and we kind of took a hardline stance on a particular note. Mm. Uh, they actually wanted us to. Kill the obsession storyline, oh. uh, and they wanted us to. The, the financiers wanted us to make it a kidnapping movie, and I was not very interested in doing that version of the movie. Yeah, um, for for all the reasons we just spoke about, and uh, so I wrote a very impassioned letter saying, "This is why it's important to the story, and this is why it's important to the characters, and this is why it's going to be a better movie." Mm-hmm. Um, didn't hear back for a month. <laughs> oh shit. It was a letter,
0: like an actual snail. Like mail it was physical like a letter, letter that
1: went with the second draft where it was like, here's here's why we didn't do that note. Here's right. why we, we did this other thing. And uh I, you know I started to think I started to think, shit, did I fuck up? You know. a month uh, of and, silence. Yeah, yeah, I'd be nervous A month nervous of silence. Too. So um my wife and I were just got back from our, our vacation for our 10th anniversary, and I got a call that we were greenlit and that we were going to start shooting in less than a month.
0: Whoa. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. In less than a month. And uh, and I, w- I needed to be in New Mexico in like two weeks.
0: Is that where you filmed, um, by the way, in New Mexico?
1: Yeah. We were in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, it was so funny. I, I, I began my career in Phoenix shooting my shorts in Phoenix to come to L.A., to go make my first movie in a place that looks just like Phoenix. Uh, <laughs> it all comes full um, circle, huh? I, I guess. Uh, but um, you know, my uh, uh, sorry, um, we can edit that piece out. Yep. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, so the only the only person I had to uh, time to meet with was Mick. Uh okay. I, Because I was literally like out the door, and I I called him. I was like, Mick, I have to leave like tomorrow and I need, I need to talk to you before I go do this. Uh, So, so he and I sat down and we went through the project and we talked a lot and, you know, he was just so encouraging about like, you know, just try and, you know, because here's the thing when you're doing a feature, when you're going from a short to a feature, and this is something that I had to really kind of learn on the fly while doing this movie. Um, I think the thing that people don't talk a lot about is, the uh endurance test mm. that it becomes right but you're doing a short you're packing everything into one two or three days mm-hmm. right so you can you you know what your locations are going to be you know who your cast is going to be you know who your crew is going to be you know exactly everything that's going to happen you know uh like and i had this conversation with my my friend who just won south by southwest with his short film which is brilliant by the way oh nice uh, what is it it's it's called Laura hasn't slept uh, director's name is Parker Finn. He's terrific. Oh, nice. Uh, he's he's going sure to be a thing. He's going to be a thing. But uh, he, um, but you know, we were talking about that. He he got to build a whole soundstage set for this short film. He poured all this money into oh, this shit. couple of in the soundstage, so he could shoot everything specifically and perfectly and beautifully. And on a low budget, run and gun indie, you don't really have that luxury, um, and uh, you're moving really fast. And you know, the the you things are constantly shifting. Locations are shifting. Actors are shifting. Uh, and that was something that I had to kind of learn on the fly and say, can I do this? Mm. You know, uh, can I adapt? Um, because a lot of those things were just beyond my control. They were beyond the producer's control. It was just it was what it was. Right. You know, when the uh, the the both the ambulance and cop car picture cars broke down oh hell well that's just this is something that happens you know and you gotta you gotta figure it out you know so right. um, but uh, yeah I mean it's it's so that was the big I think shift and I think that was what Mick was most encouraging about was just kind of talking me through that process so that I could be mentally prepared for it the endurance um, element. Yes. Yeah. Not Which just the cool. late
0: nights, but that whatever can go wrong will go wrong element of filmmaking.
1: Yes, and to try and constantly be the cheerleader and champion, and you know not let it get to you, and uh, push through, and you know, yeah. Cast, I think was the cast would would know, my 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 first my first assistant director, Artie uh, and Andrew, and I we kind of kept all of those issues to our little triumvirate. Yeah, because I feel like uh, if
0: you start to lose it, the cast and crew, they catch on and then their yes. mora- when their morale starts to go, then it's sinking ship.
1: No. And and what's been great is is the movies has been coming out. A lot of the crew and, and the cast too have been reaching out and just saying how much fun they had making the movie that's and how awesome. happy they are that it turned out well. And you know, and and so that's that's really that's like, okay, good. We kept we kept all that stuff kind of bottled up. That's good. Uh, but, but, uh, but I think I really, again, I really credit that with having that conversation with Mick ahead of time. And uh, did he basically you know, say, no and, matter
0: what goes, no matter what goes wrong, you got to keep it together on set.
1: Essentially, you know uh, you have to be, you have to be there for the actors. You have to be their support. You have to be there, you know, and, uh, and on this movie where I didn't have the budget and schedule to do anything super flashy, mm-hmm. you know, nor I think does a domestic thriller, allow you to do any kind of crazy stunts or gore effects or you know anything like that 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 i think a, another low budget horror movie could rely on um you know just to be buzzy uh i had to i had to rely on the, the performances you yeah. know that was that to me was the, the big crucial thing and i knew that in our villain we had the chance to create uh, a really memorable character um and and uh, luckily Annie Heiss was totally on board to do just that. Yeah, she was uh,
0: very very chilling and just vicious yeah. and hateful throughout Thank the you. whole movie. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because a lot of people will might say, well, she's she's cr- she's crazy from the get go, and I'm like, yeah, she is because she's been crazy for years, right? You know. Uh, like she, she, this isn't a character that eases into becoming evil. This is someone who is literally evil from the jump. Right. Um, yeah. And we talked a lot about, uh, I mean, we had, we had two kind of performance, uh, comps that we would talk about a lot. And it was Jack Nicholson and the shining oh, cool. and, <laughs> and Tippi Hedren. Uh, and I was like, I was like, if we can mesh those two together, I was like, that's kind of what I had in my nice. head for Alessandra. And I think she really, she, she, she came to play on that for sure. Did you guys rehearse a lot? No, I met her the day before we
0: started. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard mixed things from different directors. Some say they very much rely on rehearsals and others, even Spielberg doesn't rehearse. He said there's something about the raw magic you get on day one when people are hitting it raw.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I, the reality was I didn't have a choice. Uh, yeah. we, because we were, we were prepped the movie in three weeks. Uh, those roles were cast Wednesday and we were shooting on Sunday. Um, so the only person they I were had cast was, Wednesday
0: and you were shooting on Sunday. Yes. That is yeah. insane. Wow. It
1: was insane. They were out on, uh, they were out Saturday for their costume fitting. And that's where I met <sighs> them for the first time. And uh, and you know we went, we went out to a dinner the night before with the producers and and that was kind of where we kind of all at least at least got through some of the initial dinners yeah. but uh, we didn't have much more of a luxury than that um, no the only the only actor I had any kind of conversation with in advance really was uh, Brittany Ratledge who played Taylor okay um, and and that was only just a phone call and I could just tell right away that she was going to bring the empathy I needed. Uh, and I think she really does a great job. I mean, she's, I, I can't wait for her to get cast in like a true slasher type movie. Cause I think she'll be a great final girl. Oh but, yeah. Yeah. I can uh, totally see it. <laughs> I
0: can totally see it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. her, her star power was, uh, was huge. i was surprised I'd never seen her anywhere before, you know? Before
1: yeah. I area. mean, I hope, I hope we see a lot more of her. Um, yeah. No, she had worked with uh, Alejandro Brugués in an episode of From Dust Till Dawn. And okay. She did look a little familiar. Him, yeah, when I told him that she was in the mix, he was like, "Go with her," and uh, and so that that was really really helpful. I'm I really grateful for that. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. So.
0: Yeah, because I feel like when it comes to casting, it, it is important to hear from other directors that this person is going to be reliable and they are going to be column on set and they're going to just, they're they're going to be able to, to do what's needed because a lot of actors just break, particularly with horror movies, you know. But I feel like that's half the battle is not just how talented is the actor, but are they going to be reliable? Because yeah. I've heard horror and- stories from directors that say, Eli Roth has a thing about how you don't, if they're, if they're either completely and totally new to acting or if they're super famous, they're great to work with, but anybody in the middle will fuck up your movie. And I think Umberto <laughs> Lenzi told him that. <laughs> they either have to be super famous or just starting out. Anything in the middle, they will break down.
1: <laughs> That's really funny. I, I mean, you know, luckily, Britney came to play. And I mean, she, you know, really quickly, I think you figure out, you start to figure out what actors you can rely on in the order of coverage, right? Like mm. some actors are going to burn out quick. Some actors are going to, they need some time to get warmed up. The thing about Britney was she was good whether we started with her or whether we ended with her uh and so i just like she was just you know i i always went to her in a pinch you know it was like if i had to if i had other actors in the scene that i knew were gonna burn out quick i was i could always rely on going to her coverage Mm. later uh and she would be just as good as she was take one um i mean yeah i i I think she's uh she's gonna have a a, a great career ahead of her Mm. um yeah, especially if she keeps that kind of work ethic. Yeah, you know? it
0: makes sense to have that kind of pinch actor in the It's an odd sounding term, but someone you can yeah, turn no. to when everybody else is burning down.
1: We we had a running joke that she was one tick Brit. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, nice. So Mostly
1: out of uh, time necessity, but.
0: It's, <laughs> nice. hey, in a pinch, yeah. it's important. In fact,
1: it was a performance experience, you know?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. So you were putting scripts on the blood list for a while. Can you explain basically how that works? I mean, you write a script and once you think it's done, do you submit it? And then there's a panel of people on blood lists who say yay or nay. And it goes, up. no,
1: no, you know, that's, that's the great mystery behind these scripts. I think a lot of people, the, the blacklist started their own kind of commercial website where people could upload their scripts and get them reviewed. Mm-hmm. And I think that created a huge confusion as to how these year end scripts lists work. Um, you really you have to be kind of in the system already to really be considered for these things. OK, um, so so what happens is uh, your agent or manager will send out your script to, you know, production companies. And if they like the script, you go and you do the water bottle tour, which I'm sure you've heard of. I have and, not what uh, is the water bottle tour? I oh, never heard that, that. the water bottle tour is uh, when you go to these different production companies, with general meetings, with producers and executives, and all you leave with is a plastic bottle of water
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> with the the studio name on the label.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and you have it and you get in your car and you have like twenty of them cause
0: <laughs> <laughs> got it.
1: But uh, uh, so so you go and you do the water bottle tour and you meet everybody that liked your script and hopefully you make an impression. And then at the end of the year, you hope that they remember your script and you enough that when, you know, the blacklist comes and asking what the best scripts are, or when Kaylee Marsh asks what the best horror scripts are, they when they send in their uh, one, two, three, four, five top scripts, you're on that list. Mm-hmm. And then they compile those numbers and then that's how they get uh, the, the endless. Oh, okay.
0: Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it is numbers driven.
1: It is numbers driven, but it's, it's, you kind of, it's not, it's not like a contest, you know, it's not like where you submit to a contest and then a judge reads it. It's, uh, it's really just people very much like, you know, they would, would any kind of awards voting. Uh, it's, it's what things did you like the best this year? And then Mm -hmm. you, you write it down on your ballot, you know? got it. Um, yeah so uh but you know we while i was working as a development exec chris and i were quietly writing at night uh and getting better and better and i totally credit reading scripts as the reason i got good at writing i think that's great when you can find the original scripts the the worst thing you can do is find those transcriptions that come out after the fact um oh they, yeah like, that's word for word it, of
0: the movie yeah yeah that's i, not I helpful hate because those that, and i love that's not the sorry it's not
1: the thing that's sold it's not the thing that right. sold it's not the thing that got development execs to love it it's not the thing that got them signed with an agent or manager it's like you want to find those versions of the scripts because um that's that's the rawest, purest form of what the writer intended and that's the thing that got people excited in the first place yeah um
0: and as a filmmaker, it's important to see that, you know, see this and also see how not every movie that the, the script is not ultimately what becomes the movie. So that a lot of times the original scripts are very different from, you know, becomes. Oh, with, yeah. What the movie I
1: mean, I, we just had a, a Bruce Willis movie shoot uh, right before coronavirus shut everything down. Oh, is this that horror and thing
0: that he's doing? Uh, I forgot. I no, just saw it somewhere. No,
1: it's, a, it's, a, it's just an action movie. Oh, it's nice. It's absolutely an action movie. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, um, we, but I mean, if you saw the original script, it is a completely different movie from what we ended up rewriting mm. and what they shot.
0: Uh, yeah, it's, my it's, favorite it's, thing about it is reading scripts for movies that you know really well, and then you there are all these new scenes. It's it's like better than the deleted scenes on DVDs. Like Pulp Fiction had these different scenes that I'd never seen before. That I mean that, that were oh, not wow. that were not in the, there's like one or two little scenes here and there that are just like oh holy shit that's cool. Um, yeah, it's that's a treat to read. And Inglorious yeah. Bastards has some different backstories. Like Tarantino scripts has a lot of a lot of stuff I mean, in it. And Kill Quentin, Bill's written Quentin like a novel. It.
1: Yeah, Quentin writes his scripts to be read.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, you and, can tell. And
1: I, I, you know, and I'm honestly a big proponent of that too. Having worked in development for so long, I'm like literally was reading, you know, one to two scripts a day while I was doing it.
0: Oh wow. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, you saw the good, the bad, and the ugly, which I think is important to see the bad scripts too, as well as the good scripts, because yeah. I think that's how you learn to differentiate what a good writer does from what a bad writer does, uh, which I think was hugely helpful for me. Um, but. I think that that's how I got better as a writer was seeing those differences and understanding what was good and what was bad. And, uh, you know, over that time, as we continued to write and write and write, uh, those ideas kind of found their way into our scripts. And suddenly that's when people started responding to our material. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, we wrote a, uh, exorcism TV pilot that, uh, Uh, we set up with will smith's company um and that's kind of when i was like oh maybe uh maybe i should be pursuing the writing thing more seriously um and and that was a great experience we worked directly with uh will smith's producing partner oh that's great and uh yeah and and um you know we we really i learned a lot doing that and i i don't think it's any surprise that the next thing we wrote was the thing that got us representation Mm -hmm. um you know, I just I think that it was just that evolution of that experience that just made us that much that much better. Yeah. Uh, and then and then the next thing we wrote after that got us our our agent at Gersh, and that was our first script on the bloodless, and then it kind of took off from there.
0: So, do you yeah. have like a daily practice for writing when you're writing scripts? Are you always writing something? Do you try to abide by like a Stephen King two thousand word minimum or anything like that? Like, what does your writing practice look like? So
1: I think because uh, I know you ask people about what books they they like and stuff too um and i the two books that i recommend to people all the time are save the cat which i know you've gotten before Mm -hmm. uh and uh and on writing i think the combination of those two books is like is great um i think that save the cat can teach you the the basics and the mechanics but it's like it's like writing a script with tricycles on the bike Mm. you know like eventually you got to kick those things off and you gotta you gotta ride on your own yeah, you know, um, and uh, and and I think that on writing can really help you do that. Um, it can kind of help you, like it's like okay, now you understand the basics. Uh, and so yeah, I I when I'm in draft, I try to abide by the Stephen King, uh, you know, write a couple pages a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my my thing is uh, three pages a day or the end of that scene, whichever comes you
0: know, yeah. uh, first. So, I find so, handwriting is extremely powerful. I find I just you know, flows better. I've read that Tarantino does that, so I'm like, I'm going to give that a shot because I used to just type, do. and then a I started the handwriting. It's so much less yeah. daunting. I can't, it, emotionally, it's just, oddly enough, so much easier.
1: Well, you know, it's coming directly from your brain onto the page, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there's something very primal about that. And right. I think there's also, like, when you take away the ability, like when when you're typing on a keyboard on a word processor, it's so easy to change things. Yep. And there's something so, f- uh, um, permanent about writing on the page. Yeah. I haven't tried it myself, mostly because uh, I have terrible handwriting. Oh, I do too. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: I just fi- I mean, yeah, I just wrote in this one, and I just killed this notebook. But I, I didn't even finish uh, the awesome. script yet. But I have the uh, the the my handwriting's pretty bad too. But then I transcribed yeah. it. But no, I'd give it a shot and it helps.
1: Yeah. You know, I might, I might try it at some point. I, I, cause I keep hearing people just rave about it. I, but you know, I'm really comfortable writing on a, on a computer. I have no, like, I've never had any issues like, uh, in terms of any kind of like writer's block or something. Like when I sit down in a word processor, that that's not intimidating to me. Mm -hmm. What's intimidating when I, you know, when, if you want to call it block, it's, it's coming up with the initial idea. Okay. Um, I spend I spend a lot of time in between scripts trying to figure out what idea is worth actually mm. sitting down and putting pen to paper
0: on. What how do um, you gauge what what is worth actually writing and developing is it just a gut feeling or
1: you know it it is a gut thing. Yeah. I and I don't I don't there's no like there's no you know, sure, like I can evaluate something on a, a commercial lever, level or a genre level, or, but sometimes you just hear an idea or you think of an idea and you're like, that's a movie, right. you know? And, and, uh, and then sometimes you, you have that gut reaction and you start laying it out and you go, maybe it's not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and then that thing goes to the side and you move on to the next. But once we actually, like, once Chris and I agree on a project, And we're like this is what we're writing and this is the story we're passionate about then things kind of start moving quickly and then and then we start doing that stephen king thing of Mm. let's crank out a certain number of pages a day because i i think that i mean it's brilliant i mean you know you if you do three pages a day you'll have a script in a month
0: right you know right
1: and that's 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 unbelievable and you know uh and three pages a day you know, you could do that in an hour or two. Mm-hmm. You know? You could do that with a full-time job. Totally. You don't there's nothing stopping you from taking an hour out of your morning, get up an hour earlier, crank out two or three pages. Yep. You know? Yeah,
0: Duffy you have who a script. did um Boondock Saints, I forgot the guy's first name. He wrote it while he was bartending. Troy. Troy Duffy. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote it while yep. he was bartending. And I mean bartenders yeah. are so busy and they're going back and forth like you just Ever so often would would write it out, and then he made boondock saints. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, when when I was doing the development exec job, I barely had time to write. You know, uh, yeah. I was, you know, even even right now, just managing my producing projects outside of my writing things. Uh, it's I still don't have a lot of time to write. You know, but right. you have to you have to carve that time out and be like, okay, I'm going to take these couple hours a day, and this is when I'm going to crank out those pages. And I think one thing. When I when I when I went off independent, uh, a writer named Ken Nolan, who's who's been a great friend and mentor to me, uh, he wrote Black Hawk Down. Oh, okay. Um, he uh, he said that most professional writers only write for three hours a day ish uh, because they get exhausted, they get mm-hmm. tapped, they get you know their their best stuff is not going to come if they're forcing it. Right. Uh, so better to do those couple hours, get those pages. And then spend the rest of the day thinking about the next pages, dreaming mm. up the next things. You know, yeah, watching movies, getting inspired, reading other things, reading articles. I think you, that's know, you huge. never know where that that life is inspiration is going to come that'll end up on the page.
0: Yeah, you know? I feel like we're in such a hustle culture, which definitely has its merits in a lot of ways. But I do think, particularly as a creative, there is something to that downtime where you're able to absorb more. You know, by relaxing and watching movies, so that you 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 can kind of let those let your creativity sort of uh, reset itself and recharge. Yeah, there's. um, Did you ever read The War of Art?
1: No, I've never, that's read the a Warner. good
0: one. I would put that up there. It, it's close to, um, I mean, in terms of just recommendations for writers, I'd put that up there with on writing. It's just, it's really good. It's, it's, it's like, it's kind of bizarrely like a self-help book. <laughs> it's about okay. you just getting your own, getting out of your own way as a writer. The guy who wrote it, wrote a number of novels. It's basically from a novelist, but it's applicable to anybody who does any sort of creative endeavor.
1: Right. Well, um, I mean, as, as is on writing. Uh, yeah, medium. Yeah. So. It's, it. it's so
0: <laughs> universal, but yeah, it's a short read it's every page has like a single lesson on it um but it's yeah it's it's excellent he has this one part about how um or maybe it's in his follow-up turning pro the two books are great turning pro and uh and um the war of art but uh there's there's the notion of don't over tap yourself when you're doing something creative like if you Mm -hmm. run out of steam don't like Keep forcing yourself. Don't tire yourself out because then you won't enjoy it and it'll discourage you from wanting to do it the next day when I mean, it stops being fun. I don't know if I agree with this a hundred percent, but you know, it's just it's food for thought that as a creative, when you start tapping it, because half of the the battle of writing is getting yourself to do it, right? Yeah. Like if I think I
1: think that's true too. But I, I think there there is something to, you know, when you're writing and you want emotion to come out on the page, you have to be in tune with your emotions. Yeah. Right. So if you are feeling tapped or you're feeling some kind of depression or anxiety or, you know, like if there's like been a, a death in the family or something like that, like, like it's OK to pull back a little, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, and, 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 and it's not a bad thing to also embrace those emotions and, and, you know, and then maybe you can find a way to channel those back onto the page. I, You know, a lot of my creatives I've been talking to they're finding it very challenging to write right now during this pandemic I've been hearing uh, that because there's just there's just this overwhelming anxiety right uh, of you know not just the the you know what's going on in the world and people are dying and but also and from our perspective of just the entertainment mm-hmm. section we don't know when we're going to be able to open. Back up. I feel like right. we're getting back to the beginning of our conversation. It's all a circle. <laughs> it's all uh, comes full circle. But, but because we don't know really when things are going to completely open back up, I think there is this kind of like, well, you know, yes, I could be using this time to write something. But when am I going to be able to take it to the marketplace? When am I going yeah. to sell it? When am I going to be able to get it made? And I think that that kind of sort of damocles hanging over a writer's head can be very debilitating yeah I, I think you have to listen i think you have to be really sensitive to uh your emotions and yeah you have to force yourself to do it yeah you have to like get down and 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 once i think you start doing it it'll, it'll flow but i also think that in times like this you have to be especially sensitive to what your brain
0: is telling you yeah you know yeah, no, yeah, I think there's 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 definitely a lot to that, for sure. But I mean, as far as the sort of Damocles being, well, when, when conceivably could I get this thing made? I mean, do you think there's something to the idea of having a practice where saying just no matter what, I'm getting this many pages out every single Absolutely. day to I keep your sword sharp?
1: When you're starting out, yeah. too. Because I, you know, I, I have this whole... Uh, spiel that I tell writers because a lot of times what'll happen, and I'm sure you've probably met people like this too. Someone will write a script mm-hmm. and it'll be their first script, and they'll hand it to you and they'll be like, "Please, like, read this. I think it's great." <sighs> and I, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you that unless you're, you know, one in a million, it's probably not great. Uh, your, your first screenplay won't get made, and it shouldn't get made, uh, and it's okay that it doesn't get made because you're learning the craft. Right. You know, I went back and looked at my old, uh, first scripts and I, you know, couldn't believe how (laughs) mediocre they were. You know, uh, it it takes time to, uh, learn the craft, learn how to get the movie and the emotions on the page. And, uh, that's not something you can just do on your, your first script. Uh, and that's why I think when you're starting out, especially it's really important to keep writing because uh, that first script you write isn't going to be the be all end all, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you should you should write that one, and then put it in a drawer, and then write the next one, right. you know? And by the time you get to the third or fourth one, you know, you might you might be time to then call up that one contact in the entertainment industry that you might your mom might know, or <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and beg them to read the script. Yeah. Uh, as as time has gone on, Josh Olson's uh, article, I won't read your fucking screenplay. uh has has resonated with me more and more and more yeah Um. (laughs) that's a good one that's
0: really well paired with the cavalry isn't coming from mark duplass it's a video on south by southwest from south by southwest did you ever see that
1: no it's great
0: oh it's so good he basically lays out how you make your first movie and he basically says the cavalry isn't coming nobody's going to discover you and suddenly just say oh yeah here's a bunch of money go make a movie it's like you start by doing this, you start by doing something super low budget, and then there's an ounce of something good in that, that sort of gets you recognized. And then from there, you just kind of trade up until you've stumbled into a feature pretty much, but he laid yeah, it out beautifully.
1: I, I think, I think it's, I think it's, a, I think it's the same advice. It's just more applicable to indie directing, Yeah. you know? Uh, and, you know, I just happened to be someone who wrote my way, who, who wanted to be a director who ended up writing his way into directing, Yeah. you know? Uh, and I think that's a super viable way to do it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so any big directorial lessons that you, you got off of making Au Pair?
1: The, I think the big lesson for me was learning that I couldn't control everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, when we we're doing the shorts, uh, I had the ability to plan the schedules in a way that would try to make it exactly as close to what I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with shifting locations and schedules and actors in and outs and, you know, uh, and you have a a kid that you're trying to shoot, (laughs) when you have a kid that you're trying to shoot and she's only, you know, there for a couple hours a day. uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things that, that I met on my first feature that I was like, I needed to see that control and kind of just embrace the chaos and go with the flow and trust my instincts mm. uh, and trust that my, you know, my gut was going to lead me in the right place. Like the, the I think w- advice that Mick got and and gave me too uh, is, you know, it was your it was your gut instincts, your storytelling instincts, that got you the opportunity in the first place. Right. Don't stop listening to
0: those. Right. You know. That's and huge. Uh, Trusting your intuition yeah. because when you, there's so many technical elements, you have your shot list and then you have budgets and then you have your schedule and then the clock is ticking and then you have to talk to the DP and then there's so many technical elements, not a lot of room for relying on your intuition, you know, with, with, with the pressure of, you know, day one on set. But, um, but yeah, yeah, that notion of just kind of being able to, to rely on your instincts if I feel like is, is huge in the midst of all the chaos, was there anything you did it, to center yourself, you know, before getting on set, any ritual, I mean, do you meditate or, you know, is there anything that enabled you to kind of calm the pond before entering the chaos of movie making?
1: You know, I would do um, uh, in the morning, I would do some just like basic stretching and things like, like mm-hmm. I wouldn't even call it yoga cause I didn't have time for yoga, but just like a couple like basic, you know, exercises just to kind of help get the jitters out, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and and that would help a lot. Um, and I think it's really important, like we try to get there early. You know, me and, me and Andrew, my DP tried to get there as early as we could so that the crew saw us there. We were there with them,, yeah. you know. And, and also I liked getting there early too because it gave me time to talk through the day with with Andrew and with my ADRD. And uh, I think that ex- just that extra planning time was was super helpful in making sure that, uh, you know, we could try our best to, uh, control the, the elements, but, uh, you know, inevitably, you know, it just gave me time with my, uh, director of photography, Andrew, and my first AD Artie to just kind of go through everything and try our best to control things, even though Murphy's law, everything that can go wrong, will go wrong. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, 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 those are kind of the big things, you know? And then I think, um, You know, for me, it was really just focusing on my cast uh, Mm -hmm. and and knowing that at the end of the day, the performances were the thing that mattered, um, and trying to give them the most amount of time that the production could allow to to do that. Um, Cool, man. Well, uh, thank you for having me on the show. Of course, man. Uh,
0: It's been a long time coming.
1: Yeah, and I've been listening to the show forever, and I'm I'm a big fan, and much you know, I really truly I I will I will I will say this, uh, you you were probably second to Mick Garris have the best horror voice in podcast. Oh man, so. that means a, uh, a great deal. Thank you so
0: much. That's that's huge to me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah,
1: no, much, much better than me. I hate listening to myself on the postmortem mortem uh, It's tough. Yeah, I, I it's, it's,
0: <laughs> nobody likes the sound of their own voice. Even Mick Jagger hates to listen to himself sing. So yeah. Nobody you know, likes the sound even, of their own voice. Even,
1: I think even Mick, who has, I think, like the most soothing podcast voice. Uh, he does. <laughs> he does.
0: He could be he one of those celebrities that reads novels, you know, and whatever app that is that I keep getting ads for on Instagram, where like think, Eva Green think, reads you a novel at night. Yeah, yeah, he's got one of those I think they're trying to get him to do. Voices. I think
1: they're trying to get him to do some of his own stuff. Uh, so hopefully he does. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, yeah, yeah. He's 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 a really his writing's great. I mean, his screenwriting's great, but his his novels are really fabulous too.
0: Yeah, I've so, not read any of his novels. I I keep meaning to. Yeah, check him out. I will yeah, for sure. The, well, cool, well, man. Thanks again for being here. Any uh, any parting advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there?
1: I mean keep keep plugging away, keep working on your script, keep directing content, keep, you know, just keep at it because, you know, like you said earlier, uh like that Mark Duplass video, like mm-hmm. someone someone's going to see it. You're going to keep getting better and someone's going to find it and the yeah. cream rises to the top.
0: Yeah. Cool. So Cool. Well, on that note, real pleasure man. Congrats again. And uh, what is next for you by the way?
1: Uh, next, you know, is trying to figure out our way through coronavirus. Um, you know, Alejandro and I have something cooking, uh, Alejandro Brugades and I have something cooking, uh, that we're hoping we can eke in before, you know, the, uh, maybe potential second wave of coronavirus. Oh God. Um, and, uh, we're, we're trying to put together right now. One of my bloodless scripts as a vehicle for me to direct. Oh, Um, great. So uh, we have we have a uh, my my friend Liz who produced the uh, Kristen Stewart movie Lizzie that's on Shutter the uh, Lizzie Bourdain murder movie uh, she and I kind of partnered up on it and you know we're trying to figure it out but it's uh it's it's the production is not a small scale so trying to figure out in a coronavirus world is a little challenging so yeah yeah you know hopefully we can figure both of those out uh, and uh, some of the bigger projects that I'm producing, you know, we just, I just need the coronavirus to end. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I know. It's, it's, it's a pain in the ass. I mean, luckily there's a bunch of people who've wrapped on movies and now is the time to edit and color correct into all the things that you can do by yourself,
1: which is what they're doing with the Bruce Willis movie now. So I guess the immediate thing is that'll be the next movie that I have out that has my name on it. Uh, awesome. So that'll hopefully, you know, maybe, we're talking about moving it up maybe even into the summer just to take advantage of the uh lack of content. So we'll see. That'll be out in the next few months. And then hopefully uh you know we'll get this movie going with Alejandro, I'll get this next one, you know, this next bloodless script going uh with Liz and uh you know we'll see.
0: We'll see awesome. Cool, man. I'll be looking out for it all.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Nick. All I right, appreciate man. it.
0: Pleasure, thanks. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Joe Russo. Number one, stick to your guns. At the beginning stages of pitching the All Pair Nightmare, Joe was offered a deal for the movie, but only if he changed a major plot point. Typically, someone in the position of making their first feature film would grab the first deal that came their way, regardless of the consequences, but not Joe. Joe pushed back on the change and even offered to walk away. Ultimately, the producer noticed how much he Cared about this story, and he did the deal anyway, allowing Joe to keep the original concept in the script. There are a number of things to be learned here. Number one, it's critical to stick to your vision. Yes, movie making is all about compromises, and you inevitably will have to stray from your original vision a little bit for the sake of producers, but at the same time, your movie has to remain your movie. Producers are always testing the directors they consider working with. And in this case, the producer was impressed by Joe's willingness to fiercely stick to his original vision because this conviction is indicative of the kind of strength and commitment that directors need to have on set. That alone told this investor that Joe is a worthwhile investment. So make compromises when you have to, but try to stick to your guns and your vision as much as possible. Number 2. Build a tribe of mentors Joe is in a very fortunate position to work closely with Mick Garris on a regular basis and is involved in Mick's podcast where he interviews some of the greatest names in horror history. As such, Joe gets exposure and access to not only Mick, but some of the other great minds in horror. This gives Joe a huge advantage in being able to ask people like Joe Dante for advice on his own projects. It's a rare situation to be in, but if you can find a way to connect with other directors who you can turn to for advice on your own projects... Do it. Number three, follow your gut. At a pivotal moment in Joe's career, one of the pieces of advice that Mick Garris gave Joe was to follow his gut when it came to selecting and developing projects. Instead of being a careerist who takes what's given to him, Mick advised Joe to follow the stories and movies that he was naturally drawn to and that can make all the difference in many movie careers. When directors are making movies that they're not really passionate about, the audience can always tell and it makes for dreadful cinema. On the other hand, you can also always tell when directors are truly passionate about what they're making with the level of care and enthusiasm that often jumps off the screen. Furthermore, directors naturally will work harder when they care about the story, so learn to follow your gut towards what you're passionate about. It'll always make your movies better. Number four, dig deeper. Another piece of advice that Mick gave to Joe was to always dig deeper into the horror element to find the real relatable emotion. Joe took this very seriously when developing The All Pair Nightmare, which easily could have been a very straightforward thriller, but instead had this entire level of psychological depth. Concepts like obsession and psychopathology are fascinating to explore, and this imbued The All Pair Nightmare with a real spirit of psychosis. It made the movie a very interesting and fascinating watch, above and beyond most thrillers. So, always take the time to dig further beneath the surface of your characters, as doing so will make them more interesting, relatable, and will ultimately make the horror and the thriller elements work even better. Number 5. Direct for Lifetime as Joe Bob Briggs mentioned, one of the only companies putting out exploitation cinema these days is Lifetime. All Pair was a little on the tame side of outlandishness, but when you look at the plots for some of these Lifetime movies, you'll soon realize they are entirely modern exploitation cinema. In addition to Joe, Rebecca McKendry's movies have also premiered on Lifetime as well. So when you're pitching that scandalous thriller, consider sending it to Lifetime. They're quickly and covertly becoming an exploitation powerhouse. Anyway guys, thank you as always for listening if you enjoyed this episode why not share it with your friends and family on social media don't forget to follow the show on instagram at i'm nick taylor that's i am nick taylor and on twitter at the same handle thanks again for listening to the nick taylor horror show